Have you ever seen one of those hoarding shows? A person that has literally created their own prison with junk and boxes and stuff. And it's really a sickness. And the question is, why do they do it? And the reason is they're afraid to let anything go. Well, James in James chapter 5 is going to deal with moth and rust. And he's going to warn people who have been creating injustice and hoarding for themselves. And he's going to encourage the church who suffered injustice. Maybe you're on either side of this coin. Maybe you've been hoarding stuff or maybe you've suffered injustice and you need a word of encouragement from the Lord. Well, the first part of James 5 will do just that for us. And it's today on Walk in Truth. Welcome to Walk in Truth with Michael Lance. Walk in Truth is a ministry of Living Truth Christian Fellowship. It's our goal to build up believers and to reach out with God's truth to all people. There's a story I came across some years ago of a woman who they found her dead. She was an elderly woman, dead in her apartment. She had been surviving on cat food. She had really nothing, you know, everything had holes. Everything was, was in disarray. And she died from malnutrition and she was dehydrated. She literally died of starvation. And as they began to dig a little bit more into this woman and her history, they found out she had nearly a million dollars in the bank. She had banknotes and stocks and bonds. She died of malnutrition and starvation eating cat food. Why? Because she wanted to protect her little nest egg for whatever reason. And she died when she had plenty of stuff to take care of herself. See, this is the human dilemma and condition. This is the problem with riches. How many remember the story when God blessed the people of God with manna? And he said, I want you to gather it one day at a time. Don't gather a couple days except for the Sabbath. Because if you gather more than one day, it's going to spoil and little green worms are going to grow out of it. And some people couldn't even listen to that instruction. See, God wants us to trust him for manna for today, for our daily bread. And as Americans, it's hard for us because we live in a very affluent society. But we need to get the first things first. Kevin Long, who played under coach Bobby Bowden at Florida State University, said his coach inspired the team with many parables. He recounted a favorite story. He said Bowden was playing college baseball. He had never hit a home run. And finally, one day, he hit one down the right field line into the corner, rounded first, picked up the third base coach, waving him on. He hit third, came to home, hit home plate. He had his first home run. He's get slapping high fives with his teammates. He's joyous. But much to his chagrin and alarm, the pitcher took the ball back from the umpire, threw the ball to first base in an appeal, and Bowden was called out. What? No, what? You see, he had missed first base in his excitement of rounding the bases in his first home run. As a lesson to his team, he said, if you don't take care of first base, it doesn't matter what you do. He said, if you don't honor the Lord first, it doesn't matter what else you do. How many of you remember the story? There was, there was a great video from some years ago. It was a college softball game and it was a championship game. And, and a young lady had hit a home run to win the game. And she was celebrating and she was going around first base. And I don't know if it was on the base or her, she was jumping up and down, but she tweaked her leg and she couldn't move. She was on the ground writhing in pain. And everybody's trying to figure out what to do. What, what's the rule in this kind of case? And the rule says you cannot put a pinch runner in for that player. They have to touch the bases all on themselves. And in a shocking video, the other team, 
at the expense of them losing the championship game, picked up this girl, put her on their shoulders. And as they passed each base, they helped her touch first, then second, then third, then home. Her home run counted. And the, the girls on the other team that carried her spelled their own loss. But they won in a much bigger way. In fact, I wouldn't even be telling this story to you unless that life lesson had occurred. You see, there are some things that are much more important than our next indulgence or another step up for us. And it's hard for us. It's hard for me in the society in which we live. Your garments have become moth-eaten. How many of you tried to pull out a suit? Maybe you stored it in a garage or a closet. You're going to a wedding. You got a suit from the light, late 1970s. Like, honey, I'm good. We don't need to go to men's warehouse. I got a suit from back in the day. It's got ruffles. It's a pink color. And you go out there, and there you are in the garage. You try to put the suit on. You're like, ooh. Ooh. It's not me. This thing has shrunk over the years. I haven't got larger. It's a problem with the clothing. And then you find it's been moth-eaten. It's weird. There's holes everywhere in the garment. And your wife looks at you and says, go to the men's warehouse. You'll like the way you look. <laughs> you won't like the way you look. I won't like the way you look in that thing. And you might respond, but holes are cool these days. The, ki the kids buy them with the holes, the moth holes in them now. Yeah, but you're too old for that. <laughs> One writer says the moth looks like a harmless creature. In its pearly white color, it hovers about with, with, without sound at twilight. Or in a dark room, and especially in our closets where woolen clothes are kept, it is not impertinent like the robust flies of the summer. It does not have a sting like the mosquito. It does not sound in our ears the shrill notes of a cricket. It does not nibble and gnaw like the mouse or rat or roaches do or indecently overrun our food. It is most fair, is the moth silent, apparently harmless. Yet every housewife springs after it with electric haste. It is a dreadful pest, not for what it is, but for what it does. Once a garment is moth-eaten, it's almost impossible to repair. How true this is in the case of the proud rich, says this writer. Once one begins to suffer the sickness of pride of riches, the cure is very difficult. Let us beware, for once the moths have done their work upon us, there is hardly any hope. Let us remember also that the moth does its work secretly without our realizing it. And so does our pride in riches. We may be proud of the things we wear and possess without ever realizing it, how stealthily the moth works and how stealthily our pride of our souls. You see, your gold and silver, verse 3, have rusted, says James. And someone might say, well, yeah, the moths may eat my clothes and Maybe other creatures can get to my food or my food will spoil, but not my silver and gold. I got silver and gold. They don't rust. But there's some evidence back in the day that the coinage of James' day was not pure, but contained alloys and could rust under conduc conducive circumstances. Or James may be speaking figuratively, figuratively, declaring that in the day of God's judgment, gold and silver will be useless as if they were rusted. And so we have to be careful when it comes to our currency. I heard a story of the European countries, January 1st, 2002. Uh, they began switching from their existing currency, the lira, franc, mark, and so on, to the euro. 
After a grace period of six to eight weeks, all traditional currency became worthless. According to the Chicago Tribune, two men in Berlin planned to fill an empty swimming pool with nearly 45 million worth of Deutsche Marks. They've invited people to come to the pool party and dive in. The German government will use about 128 shredding machines to dispose of old banknotes. The state government of Hesse will burn its marks in a heating system. And organizers of the Cologne Carnival want to use shredded notes as confetti. The Austrian, uh, Austrians plan to turn their shilling into 560 tons of compost. Likewise, there will come a day when all our money will become no more valuable than compost, close quote. It's hard for us to imagine that we could look at a banknote or we could look at coinage and we could say, oh, it'll be worthless one day. But that's just the truth. And we've been sold a lie that the things that we think are going to last actually will not. And that's why we need wisdom to handle things correctly. The Apostle Peter writes, don't ignore this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like one day. An economist heard that verse and he was quite amazed about it. So he went to God and he said, Lord, is it true that a thousand years for us is like one minute to you? The Lord said, yes. The economist said, then a million dollars to us must be like a penny to you. The Lord said, well, yes. The economist said, will you give me one of those pennies? The Lord said, all right, all right, I will. Just wait here a minute. Behold, the pay of the laborers, verse, five, James, verse 4, James 5, who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you, cries or shouts out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of the Sabaoth. It's a unique word. It's the Lord of hosts, ESV. It's the Lord Almighty, NIV. The New Living Translation says, it's the Lord of, of heaven's armies. If you mess with God and his people, the one who leads the angelic armies might set his target sights on you. And as his people cry to him and say, we've been wrong, Lord, help. There's no justice. God says to the rich one who's manipulating his people, watch out. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due. Proverbs 3.27 don't say to your neighbor, go and come back tomorrow and I'll give it to you when you have it with you. Leviticus 19.13 says, don't defraud your neighbor or rob him. Don't hold back the wages of a hired man overnight. Deuteronomy 24.14 and 15 says, you shall not oppress a hired servant who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your countrymen or one of your aliens who is in your lands or your towns. You shall give him his wages on his day before the sun sets, for he is poor and he sets his heart on it so that he may not cry against you to the Lord and it becomes sin in you. Deuteronomy 24, 14 and 15. Malachi 3, 5 says, Then I will draw near for you to you for judgment. I'll be swift, a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the wage earners in his wages, the widow and the orphan. And those who turn aside the alien and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. And finally, Jeremiah twenty two thirteen says, Woe to him who builds his house without righteousness and his upper rooms without justice, who uses his neighbor's services without pay and does not give him his wages. We're winding down, but let's look at the last. 
Hey, listening family, this is Pastor Michael. I want to tell you a little bit about a college that we have going. It's called the Truth Academy. It meets at Living Truth Christian Fellowship in the city of Corona, and it's an apologetic school with also an emphasis on theology. Do you want to grow in your faith? Do you want to be more equipped to share your faith in the public square? Well, this school will help you. And here's Joe Kelly, the director of the Truth Academy, to tell you more. Thank you, Pastor Michael. Boy, has there ever been a time where the need has been greater for God's people to know what they believe and why they believe it? Well, the Truth Academy is here to help the believer contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So I'd encourage our listeners, Pastor Michael, to go online to thetruthacademy.com. Take a look, see what we have to offer. Our classes are available either in person if you live in Southern California, or if you want to take a class online, that's available too. You can learn from the comfort of your own home. Once again, that's thetruthacademy.com. We look forward to having you as a student in the near future. Thanks, Joe. That's exciting news. Thetruthacademy.com to give reasons for faith, reasons for hope in our culture. Man, it's so desperately needed. Check it out today, thetruthacademy.com. And does not give him his wages. We're winding down, but let's look at the last two verses. He says to this audience, you've lived luxuriously on the earth. You've led a life of wanton pleasure. You fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You've lived a pampered life. You've lived delicately. Imagine on a farm, a hog or a turkey or a cow that doesn't realize it's being fattened in the field. It's out there. But the problem is it's been being fattened for what? A day of slaughter. And that's the image James gives us of the wealthy, uh, unbelieving rich who are hurting God's people. She who gives herself to wanton pleasure, 1 Timothy 5, 6, is dead even while she lives. James seems to be saying that soft living will sap you and destroy a man of his moral fiber. Watch somebody who has so much wealth so much luxury, so much pampered living that they have to think up the next pleasure because they get bored with the caviar and bored with the yachts and bored with this and bored with that. So they have to think of new ways to entertain themselves. They become pampered and soft. We were meant to work, men. We were meant to work and to earn a living. We were meant to do what God's called us to do, ladies. Ezekiel 16, 49 says of Sodom, she and her daughters had arrogance, abundant food, and careless ease, but she did not help the poor and, the, and needy. Get this, Bible students. Ezekiel 16, 49 indicates, we know homosexuality was a big problem in Sodom, but what may have led to that sin was careless, luxurious living where they were trying to think up new ways to pleasure themselves. And so they got into all these rampant, ungodly lifestyles because they were bored. And you look at our nation right now and look at our youth and look at the, the generation that's coming up that thinks everybody owes them something. And you have to be concerned as a person just watching what's happening. We need to heed the word of the Lord. Do you agree? There's wisdom here. And as I mentioned, the religious leaders were the ones behind a lot of this because they loved money, Luke 16, 14. In his first sermon in an elementary preaching class, Lawrence, an African student, chose a text about the joys that we'll share when Christ returns and ushers us to our heavenly homes, our heavenly home. 
He said, I've been in the United States for several months now. I've seen the great wealth that is here, the fine homes, the cars, the clothes. I've listened to many sermons in churches here too, but I've yet to hear one sermon about heaven. Because everyone has so much in this country, no one preaches about heaven. People here don't seem to need it. In my country, most people have very little, so we preach on heaven all the time. We know how much we need it. In Luke 16, Jesus told the story of a rich man and Lazarus. We won't have you turn there, but I think most of you know the story. The rich man and the poor beggar Lazarus both die, and they end up in two different places. Lazarus is in a place called Abraham's bosom or paradise. He's next to Abraham, the father of the faithful. And he's in bliss. He's in paradise. He's in the paradise of God. The rich man who had everything, he lived sumptuously every day. He's in a place called Hades. And he says he's in agony in this flame. And he sees the poor beggar who was laid at his gate every day. And he kind of just, you know, he didn't really care much about him. And the only one that cared about poor Lazarus was the dogs that came and licked his sores. How many of you are dog lovers? Dogs will always have compassion on you. When everybody gives up on you, your dog will stand by you. <laughs> right? That's the only one. And so now it's the afterlife. One of the few behind the scenes pictures of what happens when someone dies and Jesus speaking for Abraham says, hey, son, in your life, you had your good things and Lazarus, his, his bad things. Now you're there in torment and he's here being comforted. And even more, there's a big chasm between you and us and we can't go to you and you can't come to us. Well, the rich man in this world says, well, then Father Abraham, send Lazarus to my house. I've got five brothers, lest they come into this place of torment. And Abraham says, they, your brothers, have Moses and the prophets. They have the Bible. Let them hear them. No, Father Abraham, but if one comes back from the dead, they'll believe. And Abraham responding, Jesus telling the story says, if they don't believe Moses and the prophets, neither will they believe if one rises from the dead. And in the very history in which those statements were made, Jesus Christ went into the tomb, rose from the dead, and the religious leaders paid off the guards to say his body was stolen. Why? To protect their positions and their power. There's nothing new under the sun. And so James closes with these words, this section. He says, you've condemned and put to, get, put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. Or maybe he has no way of opposing you. Bible students, if you peek at James 4.2 again, remember James said there were people who were lusting and they didn't have James 4.2 and they were committing murder. And this could well be, commentators believe it, it may well be literal that some people had murdered others by their manipulation and lust for greed. And they had even hurt other people that they claim to have the same faith. What do we do? How do we walk away with a sermon like this? Well, I think if you're someone who's been on the receiving end of injustice, you read verse 7, which exhorts patience until the coming of the Lord. And we'll learn some of those lessons next time. And as we prepare our hearts for communion, I know we're a little over on our time, but I, I want to ask the ushers to get ready to hand out the elements. And I want to leave you with a story from an autobiography, Just As I Am, by Billy Graham. He said, some years ago, Ruth and I had a vivid illustration of James' teaching on an island in the Caribbean. One of the wealthiest men in the world had asked us to come to his lavish home for lunch. 
He was 75 years old, and throughout the entire meal, he seemed close to tears. He said to Billy Graham and his wife, I am the most miserable man in the world. He said, out there is my yacht. I can go anywhere I want to. I have a private plane. I have helicopters. I have everything I want to make my life happy. Yet I am as miserable as hell. We talked to him, says Billy, and prayed with him, trying to point him to Christ, who alone gives lasting meaning to life. Then we went down the hill to a small cottage where we were staying. That afternoon, the pastor of the local Baptist church came to call. He was an Englishman. He, too, 75 years old, was a widower. He had spent most of his time taking care of his two invalid sisters. He was full of enthusiasm and love for Christ and love for others. He said, I don't have two pounds to my name, but I am the happiest man on this island. Billy Graham relates how he asked his wife Ruth after they left, who do you think was the richer man of the two? She didn't have to reply because they both knew the answer to the question. Father, as we prepare to come to your table, we're so grateful for the gift of Jesus Christ. He became poor that we might become rich. He left the glories of heaven, his throne, his majesty, his splendor and glory to be born in a cave or a stable in Bethlehem. He grew up in a nowhere town called Nazareth, a place that most people wouldn't even think twice of and had disdain for. He came from the region of Galilee, and he was mocked for it. And he came to his own, and many of his own did not receive him. But to them who did receive him, he gave the power to become the children of God, who believe in his name, who are born not of the will of man or of the flesh, but of the spirit. And Lord, as we think about our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, we think about his humility, how he came down to rescue us, how he came to save. And he even said, the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. You became poor that we might become rich in the harvest of salvation. And we know you're coming again as king and judge to judge the living and the dead at your appearing and at your coming. And Lord, we as your people, we know that these warning texts are really not for us because when you come, we're going to lift up our heads and say, yes, come Lord Jesus. But for the unbelieving world, for those who have persecuted and wronged and hurt so many, there will be a day of judgment and the judge is Jesus. And Lord, each time we come to this table, Paul tells us to remember the Lord Jesus until he comes. And so with each of us, Lord, those who are believers in this room, those who may be wayward sheep, those who um, want to come to know you or know you better, I pray that these moments will be fruitful in the light of eternity. I'm gonna ask you to keep your head and heart bowed. And if you've not met Jesus as your Lord and Savior, cry out to the Lord of heaven's armies. Something like this, Lord Jesus, thank you that you died on that cross for me. Thank you that you left your glory, came down to be one of us. Thank you for your resurrection from the dead, that I can know that death is not the end. Thank you for heaven and thank you for hope. I turn from my sin and I place my trust in you for my salvation. Be my Lord, be my Savior, be my King. 
If you want to rededicate your life, I would encourage you before you take these elements that you would rededicate your life. If you've been off track, if you've lost your way, maybe you've lost some faith because of injustice. If you draw close to the Lord, he'll draw close to you. And Father, for each precious person that's come into this place, I just thank you. I thank you for this sweet time that we can be together. And I pray that you'll bless each one who partakes and remembers who you are and all you've done for us. In Jesus' holy name I pray and all God's people say. Hey, listening family, this is Pastor Michael. I want to tell you a little bit about a college that we have going. It's called the Truth Academy. It meets at Living Truth Christian Fellowship in the city of Corona, and it's an apologetic school with also an emphasis on theology. Do you want to grow in your faith? Do you want to be more equipped to share your faith in the public square? Well, this school will help you. And here's Joe Kelly, the director of the Truth Academy, to tell you more. Thank you, Pastor Michael. Boy, has there ever been a time where the need has been greater for God's people to know what they believe and why they believe it? Well, the Truth Academy is here to help the believer contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So I'd encourage our listeners, Pastor Michael, to go online to thetruthacademy.com. Take a look, see what we have to offer. Our classes are available either in person if you live in Southern California, or if you want to take a class online, that's available too. You can learn from the comfort of your own home. Once again, that's thetruthacademy.com. We look forward to having you as a student in the near future. Thanks, Joe. That's exciting news. Thetruthacademy.com to give reasons for faith, reasons for hope in our culture. Man, it's so desperately needed. Check it out today, thetruthacademy.com. Thanks for listening to Walk in Truth. Pastor Michael would love to hear from you. You can write him when you visit walkintruth.com.